In the spring of 1962, a brand new professional baseball team was launched in the city of New York, the New York Mets. Ever heard of them? Oh, thank you. Yes, the New York Mets. They began their first season as an expansion team in 1962 after uh, the, the draft and recruiting the players and putting the team together. Took this great picture and they set out to begin their season. And in that first season, they played 160 games and they lost 120 of them. In fact, they hold the record for the team that has the most losses in the entire 20th century. They lost over 100 games every season during their first five seasons. They were in last place. The league had 10 teams, and they were either number 10 or, on a great year, number 9. They were the last place Mets. But in the year 1969, after having endured many years of nothing but heartache and suffering and losses, something happened. The fans began to ask themselves, do you believe in miracles? Can I have that picture? New York fans started attending the games at Shea Stadium, and suddenly and unexplainably, the team began to win. After spending the previous six years in the cellar, as they say, and having that horrible record of losses, they began to win. Somehow or another, this team was getting it done. And in the 1969 season, they actually won 100 games and 62 losses. They went on to the playoffs. And in the playoffs, they defeated the Braves and eventually faced off against the Orioles for the World Series. And on Thursday, October 16, at Shea Stadium in Flushing, Queens, New York, can I get the next one? They won the World Series. Can you believe that? From last place to first. We love those kinds of stories. People love the Cinderella. These are called the Miracle Mets, but the Cinderella stories. This wonderful notion that you can, through hard work and determination and patience and endurance, go from last to to first. We love that story. It's an American story. It's an American idea. The little engine that could. This idea that somehow with perseverance you can finally be recognized for the true talent that you are. We love this concept and this idea in all walks of life. With the arrival of Disney Cinderella, we give these teams that name, Cinderella teams, teams that can, against all odds, though they are starting at the bottom, somehow miraculously be discovered, and their true selves come out, and they go from last 
to first. Kids love that story. It's my daughter's favorite Disney uh, story, Cinderella. She would put on the little blue dress we got at Ross. <laughs> and she would watch that. There were some scenes that are a little harsh to watch. I know the stepmother is kind of evil. But the best scene, the best scene in the movie, in my opinion, uh, if anybody want to see the movie, Cinderella, the cartoon? Yes, I'm sure you have. The, the best scene in the movie, in my opinion, is when the evil stepmother uh, is, uh, uh, they knock at the door, and uh, the king's men are coming to test the shoe that was left by the princess at the ball. Okay, I, I, maybe I may be explaining too much, but <laughs> the, the best scene for me is when um, uh, Cinderella is coming down to try it out because somebody says, is there another maiden in the house? And um, as the constable is trying to test the shoe, she trips him, and he falls, and the shoe breaks because the mother does not want Cinderella to be recognized. And then there's this moment, <gasps> and then Cinderella says, don't worry, I have the other one. And then the camera cuts to the evil stepmother's face, and that's the best scene in the movie. You go home, watch it. There's this, this look on her face that just somehow justifies everything that Cinderella has been put through. This idea that you can go from last to first, that somehow in each one of us is a Cinderella just waiting to be discovered at our work, at our school. So we toil away, hoping some of us, that a Prince Charming will come, or that a fairy godmother would show up, bippity-boppity-boo, and somehow, finally, we could become the person that is always there deep down inside, but that nobody recognized or that others have oppressed. It's a beautiful thought. I've sold lots of uh, DVDs. (laughs) And it's woven into the fabric of the American ideal from rags to riches, that you can begin with nothing and end up on top through hard work and determination. And we applaud those who do and the miracle mets and those who are able to overcome. And there's nothing really wrong with that. It's what everybody seeks, to move up, to finally be recognized, to be given our proper due. And that is the request that is being made in our scripture of today. It's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 20. If you follow along with me in your Bibles or, or your smartphones, or if you've committed the Bible to memory, good on you. That, that's what I tell myself when I see you and you're just looking at me like this. I'll go, oh, they don't need the Bible because it's all in here. I just, that's, that's what I think when I see you. The Bible tells us in the book of Matthew, chapter 20, verse 20, that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. The Bible tells us that Jesus, by this time, had formed his close circle of associates. We call them the 12 disciples. And there were two brothers in there, James and John, called the sons of Zebedee, also nicknamed the sons of thunder. 
The Bible tells us in this particular scripture that their mother approached Jesus along with the two brothers and kneeling down next to Jesus, coming close and assuming a position of, of respect and, and deference, she says, may I ask for a favor? And Jesus replies, what can I do for you? What is it that you want? And this is her request. Verse 21, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and that the other on your left in your kingdom. It's a fascinating request. Here is a mother who's expressing concern for her sons, like all of our mothers, wanting good things for us, wishing good things for us. This is a 21st century mom, actually. I see moms just like her at school, during school plays and award shows and things like that. Mothers who beam proudly when their children are recognized, but who are not too pleased when their kids don't get to stand in front of the microphone or the best spot or don't get the awards they think are due. And so these boys' mother comes to Jesus and says, in a very humble, benign way, would you please grant that my sons would sit at your right and at your hand, in your kingdom? Fascinating request. Because she kneels down as a symbol that she recognizes that Jesus is someone greater. And she makes the statement, your kingdom. The funny thing is, as you know, at this time, Jesus is nothing but a traveling salesman. He goes everywhere selling his brand of ideas. He has no money, and he has no authority, and he's been chased out of many different places. But she understands and sees through and has been living vicariously through her son's journey, and she has begun to buy into the idea that the sons are casting that someday Jesus will rise like a Cinderella. He will finally be recognized. And the evil stepfathers, Romans, will be put in their place and Jesus will rise. And he will have a kingdom and a palace. And she says, when that day comes, grant that my sons would be one at your right and one at your left. It's an interesting request. seems benign, but it has two particular parts to it. One... Like any good mother, she's seeking provision for her sons. She is seeking provision for her sons so that when the day comes, when things change in their mind's idea, when Jesus would become king, the cultural landscape would shift significantly. Powers would be overthrown. A revolution would take place. In fact, that is what they hope for, long for, believe is coming. And now that Jesus is here, it is imminent. And so she says to herself, when this change takes place, I must do whatever I can to provide, for my, get them set up for the new kingdom. So she comes to Jesus with her boys. says, grant provision. But there's another hidden layer in there because the mother asks, not that all the disciples occupy places of importance, but that her too in particular <laughs> Flank Jesus on either side. She doesn't say, 
let my sons be close to you or, or, or make sure that you take care of them. She says, no, grant, yes, grant that they be on your right and on your left. Fascinating. She is seeking both for provision, rather noble, but also for recognition. Recognition. That her sons are not like the others. That her sons, the sons of Zebedee, that's, that's fascinating, that's a lovely name, right? Any Zebs in here? Okay, no. But what a cool name, I'm the son of Zebedee. And Jesus actually nicknamed them the sons of thunder. The sons of thunder. She is saying, my sons are a cut above the rest. I'm telling you, she's a 21st century parent. She says, oh, those kids are nice. Those disciples, eh. But my sons, they deserve to be at your right hand and on your left hand. So she comes in rather benignly, but she puts this question to Jesus. I was telling first service, to me, it's kind of funny because we know that these are grown men. This is what we know about the sons of Zebedee. Their family wasn't necessarily a poor family. Theologians suggest that their father was a fisherman, but not somebody who would just fish for a living, but that he had boats and people that he hired. They were probably a family of means, which kind of explains her position. She knows how to get ahead and stay ahead in life. But they were not a family of nobility. They were not necessarily uh, in, in the Pharisee circle. So this is a very smart move on her part. She says, recognize that my sons are not like the others and that they've worked hard, that inside of them is something special. I see it. I know you do, Jesus. So grant that they be at your right hand and on your left. And Jesus turns to the boys. This is what's funny about it because I just said they're grown men, but here comes mom asking for stuff. Would you take your mom when you wanted to ask for a raise or a promotion at your job? Would you take your mom? Would you let her do it? Listen, some moms get things done, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? Some moms get things done. But I don't know, if I, as a grown man, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I want to be known for, <laughs> that my mommy got me this job. I don't know. But there they are. I kind of fancy them being in tow. Come on, let's go to Jesus. I don't know. Maybe they're like, go, Mom. Maybe they didn't have the courage to do it. I don't know. But the Bible tells us that she goes in there with her, and she asks, grant that my sons will have this place of honor and recognition that their accomplishments will finally realize that the rest of the kingdom that you're going to set up realizes that my sons are cut above the rest. That we have worked hard. That hard work pays off. And give them this recognition. And Jesus turns to the sons, the Bible says right there in verse 22, and he says, you have no idea what you're asking. I don't think you understand what you're asking. Jesus turns to the sons and he says, can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? 
A symbolic phrase of saying, are you sure you want to associate with me and to live a life like I am living? Can you take my name and my kingdom and live like me? Are you sure you want to drink the cup that I must drink? Can you do it? And the sons of thunder Thunder back, we can. It's right there. We can, they answer, no hesitation. This is a bold move. They have stepped out from amongst the 12, and they have wanted to stake their claim. We can. Sure, they used mommy to get in, but now that they're there, Jesus says, are you sure this is what you want? And they said, yes, I want to move up. Are you sure? Can you drink this? Yes, we can. And Jesus turns to them, and with, I'm sure, eyes full of love, he says, you will indeed drink my cup. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. And when the ten, that's the other disciples, heard about this, the Bible says that they were indignant with the two brothers. And what that word means is they were really upset, offended. They were, they were not just irritated by it. They were deeply offended. You know what that's like, right? When someone tries to go around you for that promotion that you were in line for, at least you thought, right? When someone tries to circumvent you or, or maybe you guys made a deal, but that person is using the back door to get ahead. They were, they were indignant. They were upset. They were offended. Some of them probably because I should have got my mom. <laughs> or maybe because they felt like after discussing it, because the Bible tells us they talked about it quite a bit. They had sort of an understanding or an agreement that when the time was right, they would make a move. But these guys snuck up. The Bible says that they were upset. If you follow the story in the other, in the other um, uh, Gospels, you'll find that as the story of Jesus is, is, is growing in intensity, as his, his infamy is spreading, as the revolution is coming, the disciples are, 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 are jostling for position. In fact, the Bible tells us they continually argue amongst themselves as to who will be greatest. In the kingdom of Jesus. And who is the most important? I'm sure some had claims. Well, I have higher education. Others were like, well, I'm older. Some said, well, I have better ideas. I'm more innovative. I'm a people person. I get things done. And they were arguing amongst themselves as to who should be given the positions and places of importance. This we know. The Bible teaches that, especially in the book of John. So this is not, this is not new here. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. And Jesus called every one of them together, the twelve, his close associates, those with whom he had tried to share who he was and what he was about. And he calls them together and he says this, verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. He's essentially saying, you know how it is out there in the world. Supervisors 
are harsh on those that they supervise. Those that are in charge, the bosses make life miserable for those that are underneath. You know what that's like? Ever, ever been oppressed by your superiors? You can say amen to that. They're Gentiles, right? Oh, wait. Maybe not. In the world that we live in, that's just the order of things. People that are above us, or when we are above others, in the hierarchy, we have a tendency to look down, step down, and make others do our bidding. My wife uh, would come home when she was in residency some days, um, kind of stressed out. Oh, well, tell me what happened. And um, there's a, a word they use that I will refrain from using, but basically it means that when you're a student and the attending physician comes and you're all walking through the hospital looking at patients, they will pick on people. Uh, they will pick on them pretty harshly, um, ridicule them at times, you know, make, belittle them. And then she was telling me about this experience. And then I asked the question, why do they do that? Uh, why, do the, why do doctors that have, you know, who are above attending physicians make it their business to make learning physicians feel so small? And I think the answer I was given was because that's what their supervisors did to them. It's like, all right, they did it to me. I'm going to do it to you. And Jesus says, you know, that's how it is out there. That's how it is. But not so with you. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. See, here's the thing about Jesus' new kingdom. It's not anything like our kingdom's. See, in our kingdom, we celebrate the first, the last to first story. This idea of the Cinderella or, or, or the Sons of Thunder saying, finally, after toiling, we want to be recognized and be given the places of importance. But in the kingdom of Jesus, he says, whoever wants that place must go to the back of the line. You must go from first to last. Now, you've heard that before, and you've probably said, amen. But you and I don't agree with that, and we do not want to buy into that kingdom because that goes against the very nature of who we are and what our heart and what our feelings and emotions say. Nobody in this room wants to be last. Nobody. Nobody. You might be willing to let a few people, you know how I know? You might be letting, willing to let a few people go in front of you, but you will not let everyone go in front. It's the truth. It goes against our nature, but Jesus says, you want to be great? In my kingdom, whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Slave is a strong word. It's not just go and wait at the back of the line and let everyone else go first. Then you get what you want. No, he says you must be the slave. That means you will not get what you want. Did you notice that? So we have come to believe sometimes that sort of the Christian minded is that we're just kind and generous and polite. Oh, you go. No, no, you go. Happy Sabbath. No, you go ahead. You get a plate. But that we will eventually get what we want. But Jesus says in my kingdom, you don't just go from first to last. You go from first to slave. 
Did you get that? If you're a slave, you don't get what you want at all. It's weird, right? And I don't think I like the notion. And I know you don't. And Jesus says, in my kingdom, first, you must be the slave. Just as the son, look at this, verse 28. Just as the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, that's the problem here with this Jesus character. He is messing things up for us. See, in some way, shape, or another, I was telling First Service that a lot of us have been misled and misguided about this Christianity thing. And, and I'm not saying it was done on purpose. I'm just saying, inadvertently, we have come to believe or been taught or somehow snuck into our mindset that when we follow Jesus, we would be elevated to places of importance. That somehow, if we begin to follow Jesus, things were going to start working out to our benefit. That somehow if we begin to follow and read the scriptures and, and do, those, do the right things, that God's blessings would come upon us, but that those blessings would mean that I finally get what I want. But that's not what he's promising. For the Son of Man did not come to get what he wants. But to serve, to give other people what they want. Isn't that weird? In fact, to give so much away that he eventually gives all away. For the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then he turns to us and he says, So if you would come after me, you have to deny yourself. Poetic words. We're like, amen, praise the Lord. But nobody wants to do it. Because to deny yourself means you don't get what you want. It's fascinating. To give up on you, your ideas. To not be concerned with what skills you have and what makes you special and why you should be recognized as a cut above the rest. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying be a loser. Jesus wants you to just, you know, that's not what we're saying. In fact, Jesus is saying serve. Serve. Don't just be last. Go to the back in order to serve. Serve. Do for others. Think about others. Consider others the needs of others, and then give your life, position your life so as to bless somebody else. You and I sometimes will do that temporarily, but only in the ulterior motive of getting some benefit back. Okay, fine. I will do what you say, Jesus, but you better get me something on this side. Okay, fine, Jesus. I will give some of my money away, but you better get me something Okay, Jesus, I'll forgive this person over here, but that means you better fix this situation over here. Like we, we have a bargaining chip. Jesus says, you can live that way, but that's just not my kingdom. For my kingdom, you go from first to last. And not just last, but from first to slave. That's why it's revolutionary. 
That's why this is different from the way we live. That's why the challenge is hard. You know what, guys? Christianity was never meant to be easy. And I hate to burst your bubble, but God did not come to this world to make you happy. Just not part of the deal. Never. God has plans to prosper us and to give us a future, but they are not hinging on your happiness. In fact, that's why Jesus says to the two guys, can you drink the cup? And if you read it in your version, it says, can you drink the cup of suffering that I must drink? See, what separates Jesus above any other world figure in history or mythology is that Jesus comes to suffer of his own accord. That he chooses to put himself in a position of pain and suffering. And that's just so not what you and I want to do. What you and I want to do is avoid suffering and avoid humiliation and avoid discomfort and avoid, in fact, inconvenience. That's why Jesus says, are you sure you know what you're asking? Because that's not what I'm about. How inconvenienced was Jesus <laughs> to give up untold luxuries in heaven and come roam around here with the likes of us and to be killed for us and to be humiliated for us? That's his example. That's the kingdom. So when these two boys come and they say, can we get your right hand and your left hand? He says, are you sure? Are you sure you know what you're asking? Because I have not come to give you accolades, platitudes, plaques, recognitions. I have not come to give you safety and happiness. I've come to serve. And to serve sometimes means suffering. In fact, it always means suffering. Because I deny myself. The funny thing is, in God's great wisdom, finally adopting that position is what puts us in a place of prosperity. But not the other way around. Finally putting ourselves in a position of servanthood is what unlocks the key to God's provision, exaltation, and promises. I've been reading this book called Kisses from Katie, written by a young girl named Katie Davis. Can I have her picture on the board, please? Uh, I was introduced to um, this book uh, from the Catalyst Conference, and um, it's a fascinating story. She starts out her introduction with these words. <clears throat> Jesus wrecked my life. This is what she writes. For as long as I could remember, I had everything this world says is important. In high school, I was class president, homecoming queen, top of my class. I dated cute boys and wore cute shoes and drove a cute sports car. I had wonderful, supportive parents who so desired my success that they would have paid for me to go to college anywhere my heart desired. But I loved Jesus. And the fact that I loved Jesus was beginning to interfere with the plans I had for my life and with the plans others had for me. My heart had been apprehended by a great love, a love that compelled me to live differently. I had grown up in a Christian home and gone to church and learned about Jesus all of my life. But as I began to delve into the scriptures, I learned more and more what Jesus said, and I began to realize that God wanted more from me 
and I wanted more of him. So I quit my life. At first, quitting was temporary, but I quit my life for good. You know what she did? Just out of high school? She moved to Uganda. And after spending some time there, she decided that the need was so great that she had to do something. Can I have the next picture? At the age of 19, she adopted these 14 girls. She says, I never meant to be a mother, not before I was married, not when I was 19, not to so, so many little people. But thankfully, God's plans did not seem to be affected much by my own. I never meant to live in Uganda on the opposite side of the planet from my family and all that is comfortable and familiar. But thankfully, God's plans also happen to be much better than my own. She began uh, an orphanage, a nonprofit to take care of kids who have no parents, who have been racked by a disease, and um, kids who lost their parents to AIDS. And she just couldn't help herself. She began to adopt these girls <laughs> that you see there in the picture. And yet this is what she says. Uh, the book is about her experiences. It's a fascinating book about the journal uh, of the daily life in, in a home with 14 girls. But this is what she says near the end of her introduction. She says, today I've un- I am living the desires of my heart and I cannot imagine being happier. I cannot imagine living any other life than the one that unfolds before me every day. But believe me, I am by no means living my plan. I thought I wanted to go to college with my high school boyfriend, get married, have a successful career in children, settle into a nice house down the road from my parents and live happily ever after. Today I'm a single woman raising a house full of girls and trying to teach others the love of Jesus in a land that is a far cry from my hometown and my culture. This is not the life that I dreamed upon on my own or even knew I desired, but I am watching God work and I delight myself in the Lord doing what he asks of me and by saying yes to the needs he places in front of me. Don't misunderstand, it is not easy. But it is simple that in each and every one of us, but, but it is simple in that each and every one of us was ultimately created to do the same thing. It won't look the same. It won't be in a foreign land. It might be in your backyard. But I believe that we were each created to change the world for someone, to serve someone to love someone the way Christ first loved us. Would you deny yourself and give up your dreams? And I don't know. The, the, the first I read it, I put the book down and I said, I don't want to, I don't have nothing to do with that, to tell you the truth. She talks about the day when she told her parents who wanted to move to Uganda and stay there. And I want nothing to hear of that. (laughs) But I'm just blown away by this young lady who would deny herself and go from first to servant. No college education, no degree put out there. She says, just someone. I'm not trying to change the world, but I can love one person. I can serve the needs of someone. 
That is what God is calling ask, is asking of us. His call upon us individually and as a community is to go from first to last. Let's not make Christianity about how much we can get out of it. Let's make Christianity about Christ, about giving more of us away, about asking what God wants from us if we are his servants rather than demanding of him. Rather than asking for the, the privilege to sit at his right hand and at his left to be recognized as a cut above the rest, what do we instead choose the cup of suffering servanthood? I think that would make this the best year ever. And the great thing is, that's what he did for us.